I'm Jim Knight, co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on the people around us. The Don Deschler Leadership Award was created to honor Donald Deschler, my advisor, former boss, mentor, and my friend. Don's one of the most accomplished people I've met in my life. He directed more than 250 research studies while he was the director of the University of Kansas Center for Research on Learning. And among many other accolades, the Council for Exceptional Children named him one of the 10 most influential people in special ed in the 20th century. But Don's legacy transcends his professional accomplishments. I believe his greatest gift is how he makes people feel when they are with him. And he makes people feel like they matter because they do matter to him. Don has taught me a lot about how to be an educational researcher, but he's taught and continues to teach me much more about how to be a good person. To honor Don, each year the Instructional Coaching Group gives the Don Deschler Leadership Award to someone who has influenced my work and the work of the Instructional Coaching Group to such an extent that we would not be able to do what we do if they hadn't done what they did. Previous winners include Don himself, along with Gene Shoemaker, Joellen Killian, Michael Fullen, Randy Sprick, Ann Hoffman, Dan Alpert, and Doris Williams. This year's winner is Parker Palmer, who, like Don Deschler, has influenced me both by the impact and beauty of his writing and the warmth and humanity of his character. I hope you'll forgive me as I read a few words I've written just so I can do my best to honor Parker Palmer. Palmer's work reminds us that it is the human heart that lies at the core of teaching, not technique or efficiency or test scores. Good teachers do their best to remove the wall between themselves and their students so they can build connections between ideas and people, between kids and each other, between kids and the teacher. A teacher, Palmer writes in The Courage to Teach, who shares his or her identity with students is more effective than one who just lobs factoids at them from behind a wall. And Palmer wants us to tear down the wall between us and students. To tear down the wall between ourselves and others, Palmer encourages us to live an undivided life, a life where the person we present to the world is the person we know ourselves to be. When we live an undivided life, we invest ourselves in work that aligns with our deepest values. We respect the dignity of others. We refuse to hide our beliefs. Indeed, we refuse to hide our true selves. Palmer says authority is granted to people who are perceived as authoring their own words, actions, their own lives, rather than playing a scripted role at great, move for, at great remove from their hearts. This journey to an undivided life is best made with others. In A Hidden Wholeness, Palmer describes circles of trust, small communities where people communicate in non-judgmental, authentic ways to support each person's quest for wholeness. We need circles of trust, he writes, because the journey toward inner truth is too taxing to be made solo. Parker has written powerfully about our larger committee, a community as well. In Healing the Heart of Democracy, written in 2011, he suggests ways in which we may live through this time of great political turmoil. There are times, he writes, when the heart, like the canary in the coal mine, breathes in the world's toxicity and begins to die. And for many of us, those words capture precisely how we feel today. And I might say today is the day after the first presidential debate. 
The way forward, Palmer says, is not to avoid confronting the dishonesty, corruptness, selfishness, mean-spiritedness, and hateful divisiveness of politicians. Instead, we have to hold politicians accountable for what they are doing to this country. However, the way forward, according to Palmer, is not to demonize and hate those with whom we disagree, severing the human connection on which empathy, accountability, and democracy itself depends. We can begin this process by hearing each other's stories. The more you know about another person's story, Palmer writes, the less possible it is to see that person as your enemy. I'm a better person because of Parker Palmer's ideas, and a better writer with lots of room for a growth, growth still, because I'm inspired by the beauty of his writing. In a hidden wholeness, Palmer explains that he's encouraged to write the way he does because of the advice he received from his life partner and his first editor, Sharon Palmer. When I asked her what she looks for when she edits, he writes, she answered with three questions. Is it worth saying? Is it said clearly? Is it said beautifully? Fortunately for us, Palmer's writing is consistently worthwhile, clear, and beautiful. All of us who are familiar with his writing are better off because of it. So I like to start out with these kind of warm-up questions. And one of the questions just is, what's something people don't know about you but know your work? Well, that's an interesting question, Jim, because I don't know exactly how, how other people see me or what they believe right. or think they know about me. Um, but I suppose that um, a couple of things are that um, I have uh, an outrageous sense of humor that I often use to make my way through the world. Uh, it shows up some in my writing at uh, what I hope are appropriate moments, but my friends tell me that in the world it shows up at inappropriate moments. And uh, <laughs> they often uh, will encourage me to keep a lid on it, but that's really not possible for me. I grew up in a family that laughed a lot. We didn't laugh at other people. We laughed with other people and we laughed at ourselves. And so self-deprecating humor, especially. And then I suppose at the other end of that emotional continuum, I'm capable of, the, of getting very, very angry at certain kinds of things, especially things that dehumanize other people. Um, I really can't abide that. In, in my last book, On the Brink of Everything, uh, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, I have a chapter entitled, What's an Angry Quaker to Do? Uh, and I have, you know, some peace-loving friends um, who say anger doesn't have a role in this, and I heartily disagree. Uh, there are psalms in the good book in which people are praying to the, the Lord smash the teeth of their enemies. So, Tell your kids, yeah. Yeah, in the, uh, in the book I say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to do that, but if Yahweh wants to do it, we might get better dental health plans in this country. So we'll see. Well, that's an interesting question, but I'll save that one for a little later. Um, but you see, I want to ask my other sort of introduction, but you see anger as having a positive power. You know, I think anger is one on a long list of human energies. And with all of those energies, what matters is how you harness it and how you direct it and what directions you ride it. So yes, I think anger can play a positive role. I think there's unhinged, unfettered anger that just blows everything away. Mm -hmm. And I've never had any interest in that. But um, I, I find it rather inhuman not to get angry 
at things that, as I said, are destructive of other people um, and of, of values like love, truth, and justice. Right. So if your anger is not dehumanizing another person, not abusive, it's a powerful anger, but more destructive anger might be one that's dehumanizing the other person or abusing the other person. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's, a, we've talked a lot in the last decade or so about the politics of rage in this country. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I've translated that in my writing into what I call the politics of the brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there have been a lot of people in this country who are brokenhearted because they see their future and their kids' futures disappearing. And I understand their plight. I understand empathetically uh, what that suffering is like. Um, at the same time, uh, I think we have to openly, honestly, clearly, calmly critique some of the political <clears throat> choices that come out of that as when people decide that the best person to elect to office isn't a guy who's just going to blow everything up uh, because government just doesn't work. Um, I I don't see that as uh, striving for a more perfect union in which love, truth, and justice are more fully achieved. Well, we're going to come back to that because I have a a few key themes, and one of my themes is politics, so I definitely want to have that conversation. My second kind of warm-up question is, uh, what are two things you're grateful for today? I suppose the quick answer to that is life and life, (laughs) or life and more life. You know, I've always been grateful for life, even though it's taken me to some hard, dark, dangerous places. Uh, And at age 81, uh, I feel that gratitude uh, many times over. Um, Life is a good thing. Um, I feel one of the lucky ones to have had 81 years of life. And uh, I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm grateful when I get up in the morning and can make my way to the window, east-facing window, and see a sunrise. I'm grateful for grandchildren. I'm grateful for friends. I'm grateful for uh, a forest with the sun streaming through, or a forest at night where the peace deepens mm-hmm. as the minutes tick by. So uh, pretty much, pretty much everything. Good. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the impact you've had on me, and I'm grateful for the time you're taking today so we can have this conversation. Well, thank um, you, Jim. It's an honor to be with you. My first theme is you, and I've just got a couple questions uh, about you, and uh, sort of really just using your life as a way to look look at other aspects of your ideas. And so the first question is about the divided life and the undivided life, and you've written, we pay a steep price when we live a divided life, so my question is, what is a divided life? What are the costs? And what can we do to move more towards wholeness or an undivided life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has been a big uh, motif for me. And um, it, of course, arose not so much intellectually as existentially, I guess. Um, when I found myself maybe in my 20s, beginning to fear that I was living an external life that wasn't mm-hmm highly congruent with some truths I knew on the inside. Uh, So I think whenever we're living in a way that pushes back on 
I'm a Quaker, uh, and so I use the phrase inner teacher or inner light that pushes back on what the inner teacher may be telling us. That's when we start getting in trouble. Um, people who have no religious affiliation, secular humanists, would call it identity and integrity. And the language doesn't really matter to me. The point is that each of us has some inner knowing, I think, about what's good, true, and beautiful for us. And to live in defiance of that, to live in defiance of yourself or of what Thomas Merton called your true self, is to be on a path of self-destruction. Uh, I think the problem is that uh, it takes some living to figure out, A, that you have an inner instinct for uh, your own North Star, and B, to figure out what that is and in what direction it's, where you, where you should look to see that North Star and in what direction it might be taking you. Um, and, and I went through that same slow process. In, the sad fact about the American educational system is that it does very little to help people uh, listen to the voice of the inner teacher, to put it simply, which has always struck me as strange because Socrates, arguably one of the uh, primary founders of the American educational system or of, of, of the Western educational mm -hmm. systems, um, famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and I got to a point later in my life, you know, when you get old enough to feel like you can amend Socrates, uh, when I wrote uh, something like, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people, right. uh, because you're going to do tremendous damage. So for me, it was a slow journey of realizing, for example, to be concrete, I'm in the, I, I invested heavily uh, of my resources and of myself to get a PhD at Berkeley in sociology during the 60s, uh, fully believing that I would go on to an academic career. But in 1969, with my PhD in hand, I moved to Washington, D.C. to become a community organizer, mm -hmm. working on racial justice. The reason simply being that um, during the 60s, my heroes had been assassinated, the cities were burning, Vietnam was raging, and it seemed to me that taking what I knew about sociology to the streets in Washington, D.C., uh, was what I was called to do. And mm -hmm. so it, in many ways, that was um, a movement to bring my inner truth and my outer actions into more congruence. And it was also a very risky movement. Um, people ask me, why, why all that time and trouble getting a PhD when you're not going into academia? You could have you know, gone directly to, to go and become a community organizer with mm -hmm. not that much training. And I, my own, the only answer I could ever give was, I, it's, I can't not do it. Mm -hmm. um, and my life has been defined a lot by moments uh, where I felt I couldn't not do it. That double negative is very powerful. It doesn't mean I could explain why I was doing what I was doing. It, it simply meant that I knew that if I didn't do that, I would put my soul in peril. And when you, you know, as you get more firmly a hold of that fact, um, the risks become more tolerable because you begin slowly over time to sense that the biggest risk of all 
is not following your own North Star. Um, so when young people come to me, as they often do, partly because of a book like Let Your Life Speak, and they say, I, I want to have a, a time of vocational discernment with you, I'll do a lot of listening uh, because you really need to understand what's going on in the other person. But I might finally or ultimately ask the question, is there anything that you can't not do in these things that you're considering? Because I feel that that's uh, one of the most reliable guides to next steps in life. I was wondering if Merton was in the background of the undivided life because I, I see him sort of addressing things differently, but in the in same, same way. And his books have had a big influence on my thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that to live the undivided life, it's, it's paradoxical in the sense that you have to kind of transcend yourself to find your true self? Or am I getting too crazy with that question? No, it's, I think it's a great, it's a great question. And I, but I actually see it as not rising above uh, your, yourself as sinking through ego down to your true self. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, one of the lessons that I've tried to learn in my life, kind of sometimes the hard way through uh, several bouts with clinical depression, which I've written about and, mm -hmm. and speak about, um, is that, is that uh, I, and I think I'm not alone in this, have, especially in my younger years, um, tried to live at elevation, you know, sort of the elevation of the ego, the elevation of the intellect, the elevation of ethics, and the elevation of a certain up, up, and away spiritual path. And um, so the, those, those images of ascent, I think, that we uh, sometimes live by, uh, are um, dangerous because mm -hmm. when you live at altitude right. and you trip and fall, as we all do all the time, you have a long way to fall and you might kill yourself. Um, but if you're on the ground of your own true self, if you've undergone that descent, you know, from mm -hmm. high altitude down into your own grounded truth, you can fall down a dozen times a day and just pick up, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and take a next step without doing serious damage. So um, I, I see, I see. Uh, just to mention that word spirituality, which has been a big one in my life and, and is for a lot of people. Um, I, I, it, it seems to me that um, the true spiritual direction is down. Um, I once had somebody asked me when I was leaving academia, disappearing from the, as my friends thought, from the radar screen of, uh, uh, of you know, the grown-ups <laughs> at the time. Um, and as I, I kind of feared that as well, like nobody's going to be interested in me, but I can't not do this. So, somebody said, what are you trying to do with your life, Parker? Um, you were poised, you know, to become a young college president or something. And I just answered instinctively in one of those combinations of, I guess, humor and annoyance. I said, mm -hmm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to work my way to the bottom of the heap so, because uh, I, I find it safer uh, to, to stand and fall on the ground. Um, this is a, a, a challenging question, so it's okay if you say, let's just pass on this one. But I'm wondering if you could think of uh, 
maybe two or three experiences that have been sort of transitional where you say, I'm going to guess that the person you are today is not the person you were when you're 18. And there's been a transformation of your life. And I'm wondering if anything stands out as here are two experiences or events or stories or people that were transformational. So does anything come to mind? Yeah, yeah sure. Oh, absolutely. Because I've had a lot of those transitional experiences right. and I've tried to be honest about that, some of them, at least in my writing. Um, you know, I didn't want my books to turn into a, an Oprah or Jerry Springer show in mm -hmm. terms of transitional experiences. But the big, in the big picture for me, it was three descents into clinical depression, two in mm -hmm. my 40s and one again in my 60s, that, um, that really helped me turn a corner. But before you can turn a corner with clinical depression, you have to survive it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's at the depths of that experience, uh, I have no idea why some people survive it and go on to not only survive, but thrive, while other people uh, end up in despair and even death at their own hands. Um, and I certainly went through days during each of those three extended experiences, months at a time, each of them, uh, when I wondered if life were worth living. Um, sometimes people ask me, well, what was it like? And I used to say, uh, well, it's like being lost in the dark. And then I realized, no, that's a false image. The kind of depression I'm talking about is more like becoming the dark mm -hmm. or having become the dark. So if you're just lost in the dark, there's still a difference between you and the darkness. And you can feel your way around and maybe find a door or a light switch or something. But when you become the dark, uh, you can't negotiate with what's uh, with that with that uh, total absence of mm -hmm. light, total absence of self-esteem, total absence of hope. Um, all kinds of things to be said about how one hangs on. But I don't think it's a great leap for anyone, even those who haven't been there, to understand that an experience like that, if you are graced and fortunate enough to come out the other side. Uh, just plain lucky enough, I think, is the way mm -hmm. to say that, the honest way to say that, um, th that it would change your life. And you would have learned a lot about what people call your shadow. You will have learned a lot about how certain remaining divisions between true self and, and public self have helped take you to that place. And you won't want to go there again. And so, yeah, there were a lot of transformations there. I mean, one of them was that, you know, sometimes the work I've done, like all of us who have any kind of public life, requires you to stand up in front of people and say things that aren't going to make you popular if you're telling the truth. You may even, may even be just one or two people, but they have some power over your life, so it's still mm -hmm. dangerous. But it might be 5,000 people uh, who aren't, aren't going to like you after you speak your truth. For me, those moments became really a piece of cake after surviving depression. Mm -hmm. I just uh, de depression was like, if, if I can handle this uh, depression, then this hostile audience I'm facing is a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. So I think you can come out. Some people come out crushed. Some are lucky enough to come out with more courage. So there's that. And then I, I can be more, a little more specific. Um, 
I wrote a book called The Courage to Teach that seems to have had an impact on a number of folks at all levels of education, for which I'm hugely grateful. It took me 10 years to write that book. And what uh, stimulated the book was um, struggles with my own capacity to be a good teacher. Um, like most people, I went into teaching uh, with a solid academic training, but what was modeled for me in that training, not by everyone, but by the dominant academic culture was tell your students to sit down, shut up, listen to what you have to say, record it in notebooks, feed it back to you at the end of the term so they can get a good grade. And, you know, don't, don't brook any disruptions, right. um, which I think most of us know isn't really education, but there's a lot of that going around. And so the transition for me from that kind of the model in which I was acclimated to what I started realizing I needed to do if I wanted to help people learn, that was a hard transition. And I know this, this is much in your wheelhouse because mm. you do instructional coaching as, with your colleagues. And, um, and, and the book was my way of kind of coaching myself, of trying to work my way out mm -hmm. of some of those corners and uh, dead ends that I had gotten into. And it required, you know, a lot of self-examination and turning not so much to tips, tricks, and techniques as to deeper self-understanding, which yields, I think, rightly done, yields deeper understanding of what's going on inside your students. Um, I can remember, for example, the day when I, it suddenly dawned on me that those, that I was afraid of those hostile, uh, disinterested students in my classes who all seem to be brain dead, right? Mm -hmm. um, for a young teacher who thinks I'm going to be their hero and you, and you find people slouched in their chairs with their arms crossed and their baseball caps down over their eyes, it's a little daunting. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so my first movement was to say, they aren't brain dead. They're just as afraid as I am. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that in most situations of that sort, there's this gridlock of fear. And I, and I have the, 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 the shuts down thinking. I mean, we know from mm -hmm. brain research that fear shuts down cognitive capacity. And I, as the teacher, the, old, the elder in the room, uh, I have the power to, to either try to bowl my way through that, which doesn't work for anybody, including me, or I have the power to try to unlock it by acknowledging their fear and teaching to their fear rather than their, quote, ignorance. Because ignorance ain't what's going on there. Uh, mm -hmm. Or if there is ignorance, that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of looking ignorant mm -hmm. when I ask a question. So if I ask a question, I had better be prepared to embrace all kinds of answers as possible next steps in our collective learning. And I better stop just telling them, you know, what the score is and finding out what their score is so I can connect with that in some generative way. So there's all kinds of stuff like that that I think, um, you know, were, were moments in my life when 
um, things were looking pretty bleak and, and, and I had a choice. Do I, do I take that on myself and ask what might I do in this circumstance or do I just blame it on external circumstances? And I, I've always thought the grown-up thing to do is to find out how much of this dance I can change. And uh, I've always aspired to live as a grown-up, so that's, you know, that's no matter how much I want to get in the blaming and shaming mode uh, toward other people, I try to grow up and learn. As you were in those uh, dark days, I, I, as you were talking about darkness and lost, I was thinking, you know, the thing about saying you're lost is there is the other side of lost, which is found. So if you lost, you, at least you have the hope that there's a found. Right. And then it sounded like the darkness you're describing is one where you, you're not sure that there is a found to go to lost. Yeah, there's, there's not a found. And in, in, in truth, at the deepest reaches, in my experience, you, your sense of self is so annihilated mm-hmm. by that experience that you don't even think you're worthy of being found. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it, cosmos, discard me. Because I'm just not worth it. That's that's the depth of right. depression. It's a self annihilation. And that you could feel that is astonishing. I given, I mean, if you were to say, what does an accomplished life do, or how can you make a difference in people's lives? You would be one of the top two or three people who come to mind that it, yourself can be annihilated. It really means anybody could suffer that that clinical depression. Yeah, and lots, lots of people do, and one of the reasons I talk about it, as you know, Jim, is that when, you know, when there's a lot of people suffering from something and you've suffered from it yourself, don't hide out if mm-hmm. you've managed to thrive on the other side. Speak up in solidarity, speak up in empathy, speak up to give some folks a point of hope um, that it might be true for them, too. Um, because I, I think it can be, but I think it depends heavily on, as so many things do, on companionship, reliable, knowledgeable companionship, not, not people who say, hey, don't worry, be happy, everything's going to be okay. When you're depressed, those people make you more depressed. Like, they're okay, and there's one more person who doesn't get me, you know, who right. isn't listening, who isn't seeing, who's just BSing. But if, if you truly understand that that's companionship, that's walking alongside, which is what we all need in so many, many things. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. If, if people are listening to this and they have a friend right now or a family member or someone close to them who's depressed, what are sort of things they, in your experience that helped you that they could do that would be helpful? And that's a... Very important question. Uh, I wrote some about it in Let Your Life Speak, a little mm-hmm. book I referenced earlier. So, huge question, but let me just say a couple things. One of, one of my constant experiences with people who knew me during the, those times I, I was depressed is that so many of them would come to offer a word of comfort mm-hmm. that would not be comforting at all. Uh, like saying, Parker, you know, it's just beautiful out. Why don't you get out in the sunshine and smell the flowers, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than sitting in this darkened room. And that would be 
depressing to me because intellectually I knew it was sunny outside and mm -hmm. supposed to be beautiful, but there wasn't an atom in my body that could feel that beauty the way it does when I'm in a healthy state of mind. Mm -hmm. And so I'd feel like I'd feel more depressed for obvious reasons. You know, I, I can no longer have that basic human experience of enjoyment. Or people would say, but Parker, you're such a wonderful person. You've helped so many folks with mm -hmm. this or that. Um, you know, why, why don't you think more highly of yourself? And then I would feel um, I just defrauded another person. They don't see me. They don't hear me. They're, no one really gets it. And that makes you more alone. And that aloneness is what's so devastating in a depression. Later, I realized that a lot of those people were kind of drive-by caretakers. They would pop mm -hmm. in and say their thing and then pop out to kind of check something off their to-do list. Um, and, and, they, and they left me feeling more alone because I think what was going on with them is that they were treating depression as if it were a contagious disease. Mm -hmm. And if they stayed with me too long, they might catch it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's an absolutely devastating feeling when you're mm -hmm. depressed. So my advice to family members and friends is, first of all, it isn't a, a contagious disease. Just stay with that person. Sit with that person. Listen. Be silent. If the person can stand some music, um, play a little music softly if the if the person can stand a walk outdoors just walk alongside them don't try to say anything helpful because you don't know what what's helpful is companioning in a way that basically says not only i'm not afraid of you but i have confidence that you can see this through i will just stay with you as you do i've often likened it to sitting at the bedside of a dying person which some of us have done, and to realizing in that ultimate moment, you don't have a fix for this. There's, you don't have any fix. But what you can do is sit there, hold their hand, witness their journey, and somehow exude a confidence that they have the inner resources to do what's necessary. My, my favorite concrete story, and this actually is, this is, isn't something that everybody will feel called to do, but I know a lot of people who have done it after I wrote about it, and that makes me very happy. I had a friend during uh, my uh, first round of depression who really understood, I think from his own experience, he was maybe 10 years older than I. I think he'd been there himself. Um, and so he kind of, he made a covenant with me. He said, if it's okay with you, I will come by every afternoon that, that I can. I'll let you know if I can't make it, but I'll come by every afternoon, which he did quite faithfully, about four o'clock. You can sit in a comfortable chair in your living room and I will massage your feet. And he was kneeling on the floor. He he said very little, but he somehow found the one place in my body where I could connect with another person. I couldn't mm -hmm. connect with my eyes. I couldn't connect with chatter. I couldn't connect with laughter or, you know, sharing ideas. But I could connect that way. He made me, he gave me a daily 
lifeline to the human race. Occasionally, he, he was a very intuitive guy. Occasionally, he'd say, I feel your struggle today, period. That would be it. Or today, I feel you getting a little stronger. But often, he would just smile and nod and no words would pass, you know. And I could just close my eyes and relax in the comfort of human touch um, mm -hmm. and relief for a part of my body that was able to feel relief. Um, to me, that's a big metaphor of simply being present the way we are when we're with a dying person. Everybody knows that's not a time to give advice. That's not a time to say, recite the following words and you will be saved. It's a time to be present with our full humanity and to somehow let this person know, I know you, can, you have to make this journey by yourself, but I'm willing to walk alongside you. That's great. My next theme is teaching. And so I've got a couple quote, quotations from The Courage to Teach, and I, I thought I'd like to just read the quotations to you, and then um, if you could respond, that would be great. Tell us a bit more about what they mean. So the first one is, the, the salvation of the human heart, excuse me, the, salva the salvation of this human world lies nowhere else than in the human heart, in the human power to reflect, in human meekness, and in human responsibility. And then at another point in the courage to teach, you say the human heart is the source of good teaching. So tell me, what do you mean by that? Well, let's start, uh, Jim, with, with the word heart, because when I use it in my writing, I try to explain that um, I'm using it in a way that goes back to its Latin root, which is mm -hmm. the word core, C-O-R. And therefore, it evokes the ancient meaning of heart as the core, C-O-R-E, of ourselves, which is where all of our faculties for knowing converge. It's, it, we've cheapened the word heart in our contemporary lexicon by limiting it to the emotions. And um, I, I don't want to limit education to the emotions, but neither do I want emotions and subjectivity to be excluded from the equation. I think that's a fatal mistake in mm -hmm. a lot of educational models. Because, and I'll quote here Candace Pert, the late Candace Pert, a neurobiologist, who said, the brain may be located in the top one and a half inches of the human skull, but the mind is located throughout the human body. And there's evidence for that in, in the research in neurobiology. Because it's not just the brain that lights up when we think or know or figure something out. It's all kinds of bodily stuff. And, and we, a whole human being thinks with their, their whole selves. Um, we, we draw not only on cognition, but on uh, emotion, uh, on intuition, on dreams, um, on visions, on bodily knowing, on relational knowing, uh, on problem-solving knowing. You know, folks have identified 8, 10, 12 different kinds of knowing, and they all go into the equation. So I think to say that, uh, that um, the 
teaching, good teaching comes from the heart, is first and foremost to say it comes from a, a model of wholeness, um, human wholeness, on which the teacher can draw in him or herself, and with which the teacher can reach the wholeness of the student. This is all linked to under, our understanding that purpose of education isn't to transmit information or train people in skills. That's there, but it's not the whole, as we say in Wisconsin, it's not the whole kielbasa. Mm -hmm. um, the purpose of education is to educate whole human beings or mm -hmm. educate people into humanity or as the, as the root of liberal education suggests, it's an education suited to a free person. Um, it's not liberal, conservative, uh, politically. Mm -hmm. It's f freedom um, for uh, what a free person needs to know to be free and stay free. And, <clears throat> and so um, the, the appeal there is not only a kind of, I don't know, generic... Um, flag we can wave, there's actually a whole analytic um, process that one can go through around the relationships, uh, the intricate relationships between the epistemology uh, that lies at the root of our educational work, the pedagogy that comes from that epistemology, and the ethics that emerge from uh, those pedagogical models. And Probably this podcast isn't isn't the place to do the whole kielbasa <laughs> on that. Uh, but in the courage to teach, as you know, I do a lot of epistemological critique mm -hmm. around uh, the objectivism that laces through American higher education. Mm -hmm. Which I, I love objectivity. I value objectivity. We need objectivity. But objectivity is not about standing a hundred miles away from the subject and viewing it, or the object, and viewing it through a telescope so that we have an antiseptic understanding of what that object is all about. That's, that's not how we get objective knowledge. The, the, the quick take on that is this. If you ask any good scientist, how do you arrive at an objective scientific conclusion? He or she will say, we, we arrive at it through a process of intersubjective verifiability. Intersubjective verifiability. So a whole lot of subjectivities mm -hmm. who, importantly, are following the same ground rules regarding observation and conceptualization, theory, formation of hypotheses and theories, a whole lot of subjectivities are viewing the same object together by the same ground rules. And they decide that all of those subjectivities come to roughly the same conclusion, and then they call it objective knowledge. Right. So objectivity is important, but we don't get there by one person standing a thousand miles away and looking through a telescope. <clears throat> we, and we get there through engagement. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of a book that really uh, is so helpful to me in thinking these thoughts. It's called A Feeling for the Organism. Hmm. And it's about the Nobel Prize winning geneticist, uh, Barbara McClintock. 
And it's written by another woman scientist, <coughs> Evelyn Fox Keller. And uh, that, that book, without going into detail, illustrates how the principles I just was talking about worked in the life of a Nobel Prize winning geneticist. And, you know, you don't win a Nobel Prize by saying, well, this is how I feel about genetic mm -hmm. transposition today, which was McClintock's subject. But you, you do that through uh, sometimes advancing those ground rules of science mm -hmm. but with the consensus of the larger community. So I'll just cut to the chase on this one and, and say that um, I, I, think, I think a lot of higher education is sort of based on the notion that our task as professors or experts is to teach students the conclusions of the field that they're studying at this moment. And I respectfully disagree. I think our task is to teach students how to become part of that conversation of the scientific community so that they can understand the conclusions of the moment, but they are of the moment. And mm -hmm. science is an evolving enterprise. And yesterday's truth becomes uncouth as new observations are made, new theories are forwarded, and new ground rules for the enterprise are agreed upon by the community. And all of that, it's a full body sport. Uh, and it's done in community, and rightly done, it creates community between us and between us and the world we're studying. So using that concept of heart, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because it's something else you read about, is uh, what can we do to keep our hearts from hardening? Uh, the job doesn't appear to be getting any easier to be a teacher. So how does a teacher keep their heart from hardening, given at least five threats to people's identity happening simultaneously around the world right now. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a terrifying time that way. I, I think the, you know, the simple answer, there's no simple answer to the question, but my simple starting point is we have to reframe the meaning and the possibility of heartbreak uh, because uh, these threats that all of us experience either directly or, or uh, empathetically in the lives of other people, probably both, um, will break our hearts. I, there's no way to be engaged with anything significant in the human enterprise, from parenting to politics, without having your heart broken. It's just part of the deal. Uh, and What's been helpful to me is understanding, not from theory, but from experience, that there are two ways for the heart to break. What we normally mean by heartbreak can be imaged as the heart exploding into a thousand shards and just laying scattered about on the floor, disabled and out of commission for a long time or sometimes the rest of one's life. Um, and, and these days, as, as those detonations occur, the heart often gets thrown like a fragment grenade at the ostensible source of its pain. Um, that's 
there's a lot of that going around and it's really, really, really bad stuff. Um, it even threatens our democracy right now. That's the politics of rage, which gets addressed not as the politics of the brokenhearted, but just like we got to stomp out this anger, right? Um, which, which ain't going to happen. We have to understand it and we have to work with it. But the second way for the heart to break is that it can break open into larger capacity. Um, and, and if anybody thinks that's a kind of romantic notion, I, again, respectfully disagree. At age 81, I know a lot of people who've had their hearts seriously broken by the death of someone near and dear to them, maybe a bunch of people near and dear to them. And they go into a long underground period of grieving, thinking that life will never be worth living again. But slowly, slowly, slowly realize they are beginning to emerge as bigger human beings with bigger minds and hearts than they had before. They're, they are more empathetic. They are more understanding. They are more generous. Not in spite of their loss, but because of their loss. That that, that loss has opened their hearts. And I do think that, um, uh, I do think that there's a way to move toward that stage of life or that moment in life which can happen at any age. And that's to daily to do everything you can to keep your heart supple by exercising it, um, by doing what a runner does to keep a muscle from snapping or straining. Exercise it before you stress it. These days, a lot of hearts get stressed every day. And I've found it important for the last several years, well, for more years than, you know, I, I went into community organizing in, in 19, uh, 1969. And uh, that's, that's heartbreaking work around racial justice way back then <laughs> he said a little sarcastically because <laughs> uh, it's really been with us from the get-go in the century yeah, before but um, you you know you you let you let the world in but you try to frame that in ways that'll that give you a a container, a, a supple container in which to hold it. So to be concrete, mm -hmm. I kind of live by poetry. I read a lot of poetry and there's a tremendous amount of poetry that's helpful to me at this very moment in our political life because it gives me images to hold what's happening in a generative way rather than a destructive way. Um, and I mean generative for myself, as well as I hope for other people. Um, and and so it, it um, uh, I think anything one can do to keep their heart supple, um, so that when the moment of stress comes and they and they come frequently, it will break open rather than apart, is a way to think about the answer to your question. So this question I was thinking about as I read your. Uh, well, I went back through Courage to Teach. And uh, by the way, all the books, I saw a big hole on my shelf here as I was sitting at my desk and I went, 
Oh, those are all the Parker Palmer books. I put them back up, but they're. Um, so, uh, how does someone know if teaching is the vocation for them? Very slowly, but also quickly. <laughs> right. <laughs> also quickly. You know, um, back in the early 90s, I um, started creating an organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which works with, uh, among others, teachers, people in the help, helping professions of doctors mm -hmm. and attorneys and so forth and so on, nonprofit leaders, but a lot of teachers at every level of education. And in our um, retreats, one of the things we often, we often do uh, to help evoke uh, the, the teacher in them is to say, is to ask, uh, offer some autobiographical prompts, some writing prompts around a couple of, the question, of questions. The first question is, when did you first know you wanted to be a teacher? As you look back, you didn't know it at the time, but looking back, you can see, oh, that was an impulse in me toward teaching. And, you know, I have great memories of many stories, some of which are like, um, well, down in our basement, I set up uh, some folding chairs and I put my little brother in the front row and then I stood behind a table and I told my little brother about things. That's when I, looking back, realized that I wanted to be a teacher. And then the question, when did you first know that you were a teacher? And people have very interesting answers to that as well. So I think the clues are often um, laid down in younger years um, and then maybe come to fruition later. Sometimes it doesn't happen until you have a great teacher in high school or college and you think, oh, that's, who, that's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up, right? I, I have some people like that, blessedly, in my life journey. Um, <clears throat> so um, it's a tricky question to answer because it comes in many, in many shapes mm -hmm. and forms. Uh, but that's at least a starting place for me. I like those questions. I, think that's, I mean, I was answering them in my head as you, as you talked. I think uh, for me, it was when I read Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed in a second year philosophy of education class because I really didn't like school very much when I went to school. And then when I read that book, it's kind of like, well, there is this other possibility. Right, and, exactly. And, then, and, and Yeah, and that, that reminds me, Jim, just quickly that when I... When I became, when I left Berkeley with my PhD and, and left academia and became a community organizer, I spent some time, maybe the first year, sort of grieving the loss of my teaching vocation, right? Mm -hmm. And then I realized teaching is what I do. Mm -hmm. As an organizer, I was simply doing it in a non-traditional classroom with non-traditional students around a subject that's hard to classify about living together, right? And about pushing back on things like redlining and blockbusting. I was still teaching. And I don't think, I mean, since I had that insight, I don't think that I've spent a moment in my life either as a, an activist or a speaker or a writer without feeling I'm a teacher at, at root. You know, that's my generic vocation. Um, I guess that means that I was kind of right that this is something I can't not do. Right, exactly. <laughs> so. I'm going to move to uh, questions about life now. 
although they've all been questions about life, but still, um, in your really wonderful uh, address at Naropa University for the commencement speech, one of the things you said is that we should fall madly in love with life. So what's that look like? Tell me what it means to fall madly in love with life. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I hope, you know, <laughs> I hope it, I hope it makes sense to say, um, you're looking at it. <laughs> well, that's good. I don't know. You know, people don't know me, and so they can't be sure that that's a, uh, a true statement. But I, I feel um, I've always kind of been madly in love with life, although, you know, you spend many years, decades, really, not imagining that you'll ever not have it. And now that awareness at age 81 is with me every day. Uh, I don't, it's not a morbid awareness uh, because I have some kind of uh, fundamental trust in the life process um, and have always felt that, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the woods in my life. Every summer for a month, I've gone up with my wife to the boundary waters of Northern Minnesota, this pristine wilderness of a million acres on both the Minnesota and, or the, yeah, the Minnesota and the Ontario side of the border. And just being in the woods and on the water all that time um, has given me a fundamental trust in nature and, um, and, and in the natural process. And as I've often said, I, I don't know what's, uh, you know, what happens after death. I'm not, privy to the kinds of reports that some people seem to get and you know uh, I but um, if if it means returning to the earth um, I'm just fine with that because that's what I do every summer and have done for decades uh, to uh, return to reclaim the woods and the water and the earth beneath um, as my natural habitat after 11 months in a humanly made world, which can get a little confusing and a little vexing. Um, So it's, um, you know, um, I think madly in love with life is is all about appreciation and all all about understanding that life is a gift and there's only one thing to do with the gift if you wish to keep it alive, and that's to pass it on to others. And I've always felt that one of the glories of teaching uh, is that you have a chance to pass life on to others on a regular basis. And as an older person, I'm realizing how valuable it is for me to have spent all these years connected with the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And of course, they keep getting younger uh, <laughs> as I get older. Uh, and, you know, I, I 20 years ago probably got to the point where when I was flying around the country doing my, my work before pandemic days, um, I, I'd get on a commuter airline somewhere and think, my God, this thing is being flown by a teenager who probably doesn't right. even have his driver's license yet. Right. And, and that, was, that was a little nerve-wracking. But um, to be connected with the younger generation in the way many teachers have an opportunity to do, it's like connecting the poles of a battery mm-hmm. between the younger and the older. And that's when the energy flows. That's when the power flows. 
And that means you are both giving the gift of life and receiving the gift of life. And it doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's, that's one way of thinking about falling madly in love with life. I like what Henry Nowen says about this, that uh, he says, uh, this really struck me recently. And uh, he said that uh, you have to be grateful for the little things in order to be grateful for the, the big things. And so that, because I used to always, you know, have a, I do sort of like the examine every day. At the end of the day, I reflect on my day and how did it go? And I was always grateful for my wife or for my kids or for, you know, being fortunate, privileged, the privileges that I experienced. And then I was like, no, I want to be, I need to be more attentive to the fact that I'm grateful for the, the smell of coffee just after it's been ground, or I'm grateful for, yeah. you know, the little bird that I saw flip by the window, you know, things like yeah. that. So, Amen. Had it, had it just this morning when I was actually, when I was making my coffee, I thought, this, this Jane Kenyon has a great poem about it. It won't always be the, this way. Mm-hmm. And, and so be grateful for the fact that you can get up, boil some water, make some coffee and have that, you know, first kind of energy boost after the night. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you may know that Henry Nowen and I had a long friend journey of friendship and work together hmm. uh, over maybe a 20-year period. So I'm always grateful for that. I did not know that. I should have known that. I've been going back through, well, both him and Thomas Merton sort of back and forth at the same time. But Henry Nowen, um, my first time through the books, I loved them, but I didn't really take time to really go deep into them. And this time I'm really taking the time and uh, man, it's really, it's been a really powerful experience. Return of the prodigal son to me is just a spectacular book. And, it uh, is. He, he loved that book himself. It was, you know, he did about 60 books. It was one of his mm-hmm. favorites. And he, um, the, he was, he was the generous, somewhat older author. He probably was eight or 10 years older than I, died way too young in his mm-hmm. mid-60s, and, but he, we were hanging out a little um, at the time and had met each other at a Lilly uh, endowment conference on, on uh, spirituality and education. And he said, what are you working on? And I told him about this book I was pulling together called The Promise of Paradox, my very first book. He said, let me take a look at it. And he so generously wrote a foreword for that book that put this unknown writer, me, um, mm-hmm. uh, on some people's maps. Um, he, I give him much credit for his generosity as a slightly older person in mm-hmm. uh, wanting to pass the gift along to someone else. And it's always, that's always been a model for me. And it's uh, striking that he's... Uh he's pretty transparent and I don't know if hard on himself is the way to put it, but he, he doesn't let himself off. He really is pretty critical of and, and uncourageous un- about sharing whatever he's going through in a transparent way. It's pretty powerful. Absolutely. He, he was, uh, people read his books and I think sometimes they think, um, well, it's nice of him to identify with our suffering, but he suffered a lot mm-hmm. in life for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, he was he was brave about it. It's just such an interesting thing how an idea can carry on and and show up in all these different ways. And so, it's a, if you think of the work that you've done and its impact, it's just uh, 
pretty if the ripple effect and then you don't even know what one page could change a life you know it's such a incredible yeah. thing yeah i'm i'm you know i that's one of the things i love about being a writer it's like tossing a bottle with a message into it into the ocean you just never know what shore it's going right. to wash up on but you know when people tell me that something i wrote saved their life i of course feel grateful for it but i i always say the same thing you know the truth is i didn't save your life i'm mm -hmm. grateful that i put words on paper that somehow reached you and spoke to you but you saved your life with the way you understood those words and internalized them and you need to embrace that and uh, feel affirmed by that well, I need to acknowledge what an impact you've had on me as a person trying to write books. And uh, there's a few people who really shaped the people I emulate and I don't come close to their writing, but I'm okay with not coming close. I'm just going to try to do the best I can. But there's no question it would be uh, Annie Dillard would be one whose writing has really affected the way I, I, I just feel like you can open up any of her books and you can put your finger on a page and it's going to be a beautiful sentence. Me too. I love and, uh, books. And I feel that way about your books. I, I feel like I told you I've got a quotation from your wife about how to write a good book stuck to my uh, monitor so I can look at it every morning before I start to write. So I'm very, very grateful for not just your ideas, but the importance of beauty in the work you do. Well, my wife uh, wants me to thank you, Jim, for sharing that fact with us. It's those, what she said means a lot to me too. I'm glad it does to you. Let's talk about spirit. Spirit's my next theme. And uh, so you've written about seeing the spiritual in schools and in higher education. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what do you, what do you mean by spiritual? Right. Yeah. So again, huge topic. Maybe we'll talk another time about it, but um, I, I can, I'll try, do it as quickly as I can. So I've, I've, uh, for years, had a working definition of spirituality that reflects my wrestling match, my, my sense that this is a very important dimension of life, but I fully embrace the historic American wall of separation between church and state, and I have no desire to get anywhere near breaching that. You know, as a Quaker, my, uh, my spiritual ancestors were hanged on Boston Common by Christians who came over from England to give everybody freedom of religion, but didn't like this particular kind of religion, <laughs> the seditious inner light. So they hanged him. And so I'm, I don't have any romance about the good old days, you know, when allegedly American was a, America was a Christian nation, which it mm. never was, uh, demonstrably never was. Um, so I've had to come up with a definition of spirituality that works for me as an educator. And it goes like this. Spirituality is any way uh, that a person has of responding to the eternal human yearning to be connected with something larger than your own ego. Um, any way one has of, of answering the yearning to be connected with something larger than your own ego. I mean, we start with the fact that ego if you're only connected to your ego, it's a very lonely place to be. <clears throat> you're going to die one way or another. <clears throat> but, and, and so you have to answer, what, what's the larger thing that I might become part of? Um, and the word religion itself roots in the Latin religere, which means to bind together. So, you know, we're all looking about what is it that we're bound in? Or as my 
Quaker elder friend Douglas Steer used to say, the question is not only who am I, but whose am I? Oh, that's great. And I've always liked that way of framing it. So what I like about that definition is that it's value neutral, which it should be in an educational context. The Third Reich was, an, was a response to that yearning to get caught up in something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. But it was an evil something. It was the myth of Aryan superiority, mm-hmm. which we're learning more about in the United States here in the year 2020. Mm-hmm. White supremacy, um, et cetera, et cetera. White nationalism. Um, you can you can come up with evil answers to that question, or very very bad answers to that question. Um, belonging to a murderous gang would be, and sometimes that gang is in East LA, and sometimes it's on Wall Street. You know, right. not caring about anybody or anything except their own profits. But at the other end of that hum, very human continuum, uh, people have gotten bound up with something noble, something good. All of the greats that I honor, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, Rosa Parks, they were all bound up in something good that was larger than themselves, a cause, always, always on behalf of love, truth, or just, and or justice. So I, for me, that definition works because what it says to me is education ought to be in the business of helping students understand the dynamics of the decisions that they make in life about what to get caught up in, Mm -hmm. um, how they want to answer that eternal human yearning. Uh, Those aren't aren't simply value decisions or moral decisions. Those are fundamentally spiritual decisions Mm -hmm. in, in the context of my definition. And they aren't necessarily, you know, they're, they're often not creedal in the sense of, you know, do I sign up for the Baltimore Catechism or do I sign up for some Protestant denomination's version of reality? No, they're, they're much broader than that and therefore do not uh, violate in any way the separation of church and state. And they are the answers that are driving uh, the answers to that question of spirituality are driving huge movements in human history, always have and always will. So everything going on in the middle of the East is, is like what it is that people are devoted to. Mm-hmm. Everything going on in this country, what it is that people are devoted to, in a spiritual sense, understood through this lens. So that's why I think we have to talk about this, this, a spirituality of education which has both to do with what dynamics are driving education itself in terms of how it frames what we want people to be connected with. Because if it's only the intellect, it's not going to serve, mm-hmm. not going to serve the cause of human fullness well. Um, and then within education, how can we look at other phenomena in history, society, and culture and make discerning observations about spiritual dynamics. So I wanted to share a couple words with you and then help ask you if you could define them, Um, but not necessarily with a definition. It may be that you would give me a a metaphor or a story or, you know, I don't want to sort of pin it to the bulletin board of the definition, but it's helpful to have an understanding of words 
for a deeper conversation. So, yeah. so in spirituality, these are words that I would put in the context of spirituality. So one would be love. You talked about the trivialization of some words. This would be one that's really been trivialized. When you use the word love, which you use quite a bit in your work, how do you, what is it you're talking about when you talk about love? Well, I think in the frame that maybe we've sketched out already, love is one of the big connective tissues um, between us and other people and us and, and the world. Um, I, I don't know, you know, for example, um, curiosity, I think, is animated by love. Like, hmm. I, I'm, I, and curiosity is such a root driver of, of education, like, What's going on here? I feel connected to this, either positively or negatively. Yeah, I either feel like it's this, this thing that we're looking at is, is driving a positive connection with, what, with X, Y, or Z, or it's driving a severing of the bonds. And I, and I love the force field too much to walk away from it disinterested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, apparently... There are people, and some of them are in very high offices, who aren't interested in anything except their own fates. Mm-hmm. And I also see in them a failure of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, aren't, they don't love the world. They don't love other people. They love themselves, and they, they have really failed to answer in their lives that question of how do I connect with something larger than my own ego? There are just huge failures around in the inability of some people to answer that question. Um, so I, I think of, of love as, as a, such a root emotion. Obviously, I'm not talking simply about romantic love, but something much larger than that. And I think we all know that romantic love doesn't last all that long. Uh, every honeymoon ends, and you have to uh, fall back on something some for, a form of love that's more fundamental, more holistic, more more organic, and more reliable to sustain relationships that matter. Um, I love democracy, and I uh, grieve everything that eats away at democracy. Some stuff has been eating away at it from the beginning of the Republic. Some stuff is eating away at it uh, with special ferocity right now. And when we love something, we, uh, we would take a bullet to preserve it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the, it's the mother bear, mother lion metaphor that men also can feel and do feel. We just have to be careful about what we love. Um, and, and, you know, to quote an old song, let's not go looking for love in all the wrong places. Right. That, that just, that doesn't work. Well, I would think it's attached to the idea of spirituality, that uh, healthy love is love that's about something bigger than yourself, and a less healthy love is one that's focused on you internally and just on yourself. I think that's, right. that's right. what I'm hearing. Yeah, and if, if Henry Nouwen were with us, he, he loved this particular word he'd be he'd say let's talk about passion because mm-hmm. uh, passion and patience he said he always said they're rooted in the same word mm-hmm. the same root and i can't remember at the moment whether it's greek or latin but 
they come from the same place and they dance with each other, right? So mm. if you have passion about something and that passion is going to be sustainable, you also have to have patience with it. Um, in the case of democracy, this is one thing the founders got right. They built a system for the long haul, or at least they intended it for the long haul, mm -hmm. um, that ha had to do with slowly, slowly, incrementally achieving a more perfect union. And, you know, who can't say that about friendships or about marriage or about devotion to a vocation? Let's just keep working away at a more perfect union. I like uh, Dallas Willard's definition of love as engaging the will for the good of others. I found that to be a helpful one, but not complete. And I think what you add to it is an understanding of engagement. And well, and I think patience and passion, the, those elements, those also expand it. Because I, I think as much as I love that definition, I think it's, it sounds a little clinical. There's, there's a, you can't leave the emotion out of it. You know, I can engage my will for the good of another and not enjoy doing it and not get any, there's no patience or passion or, or warmth or affection. So I like, I, I continually try to define that term uh, in my own life. So I'm grateful for your, your gifts in terms of defining it. I have another, another one is the word suffering. How would you help us understand what that means? This is a really interesting one, I think, especially from a Christian point of view, because suffering has has been such a a big word in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. and it's always associated, of course, with with bearing your cross, and uh, right. um, that's where years ago I found it important um, to make a distinction between false crosses and true crosses. Um, there are false crosses that get laid upon us by culture, by racism, by sexism and misogyny, by what it is we're told that we just must put up with, uh, how it is we're told to color within the lines. Those are false crosses. And it's sad for me to see how many people spend their lives kind of nailed to those crosses mm -hmm. without much help. And, in getting off. Um, and, and, and at the same time, there are crosses that come with just being human, let alone with, um, you know, fundamental moral misjudgments that we have made or mistakes that we have made. And I, I do think that there, in, in those cases, the true crosses in life, uh, which include just the fact of confronting your own mortality and you you can have a you can you can have a, a pretty settled or graced view toward your own mortality but you can never deny that you will i can't anyway that you'll hate to leave this life and mm -hmm. the, the suffering will be not only required in the moment but required as you move in that direction you know for a long time, I wondered, well, what, what am I going to do when I can't travel around and give talks and establish organizations and all of that? I've sort of learned the answer to that. There's a lot of things I can do, and I can talk to good people like you and, and uh, participate in good events of this sort. But um, 
so I was able to get past what I what for some men is real suffering that as soon as the job ends they end too in their own view of themselves. Uh, but there's a, there are some forms of suffering that are just inevitable for for all of us. Um, we we hold them differently, but still some sort of core suffering is there, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I, I think that I have to keep working with that. I have to keep understanding where that is coming from. Uh, I, one thing I need to understand, and I think I'm not the only one, is that I am one among many. Mm-hmm. And that the question isn't, why me? It's, why not me? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is part of what it means to be human. Lots of, lots of folks who have gotten cancer and have had bad diagnoses around it have learned to transpose that question from why me to why not me. I, I learned it on a new level with the beginning of the pandemic when I realized that I was in a high-risk population because of age and underlying conditions for getting the disease and probably dying from it if I did. Um, and suddenly realized after a day of feeling sorry for myself that there are people around this planet, always have been millions and millions of them, who live at high risk from birth to death, not because of viruses, but because of racism, sexism, structural poverty, etc., war, genocide. And I truly had a next step in that movement towards I am one among many, why not me? Um, and that's that's been liberating. So I think there are things we can we can do with, with that. But a lot of suffering has to do with perceiving. And this it's sad to think about this because there are people who go through life this way, who are white and middle class and straight and you know like me live in a society that privileges all of that. It's, it's, it's sad to go through life in, those, in some of those cases, um, suffering the whole time because you feel everything is a threat to your privileges and prerogatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I feel lucky to have avoided that uh, particular form of suffering, but there are people who do, and they need to understand that they... Uh, that this is not the case, that everything belongs and that everything can work together for the good if we are honest about it and if we play a generative role in it. So the, one of your quotes from the Naropa speech was, violence is what happens when we don't know what to do with our suffering. Can you tell me a bit more about this? And then we'll move to politics because it seems like the next logical step. Sure. Yeah, so uh, briefly, um, violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Um, I, I think that, you know, right now, uh, there, there are people on both sides of the political divide who, who are suffering. And some of those people are translating their suffering into violence against others. Um, and it's always the worst response because it simply multiplies 
everyone's suffering. So others, however, are translating that into generative insight and action that can benefit them and the common good. <clears throat> so they, their suffering has led them to understand maybe things they hadn't understood before. I think there are a lot of white Americans right now who, has, who over the years have felt threatened by um, the, the uh, cries in the black community for justice after all these centuries of injustice, who now, especially after the death of, of George Floyd, um, understand what that's all about and have, have been strangely relieved, even though they now understand their culpability in it. I mean, if, if a hard experience can take you through to embracing the truth, uh, paradoxically, it, that brings you comfort, even when it's a hard truth to embrace. Like, like oh, I've, I unknowingly have been a racist all these years, mm -hmm. but I now understand how, how that works and why it's worked in me. And I want to do something generative and just about it. And then others, of course, are turning to other, other mechanisms of expression. I think my original clue for that, Jim, really came from all of the great world religions and wisdom traditions, because every one of them, as far as I can tell, at root, is, a, is an attempt to answer the question, what's the best way to hold our suffering? Um, you know, so for Buddhists, it's saying suffering is, is inevitable. So, you know, so get with the program, <laughs> kind of get a life. And for other traditions, it's about a set of symbolic understandings about how suffering can be absorbed into something that's holy and generative of more life. So if you go back to what you said about anger being, can be constructive or destructive, maybe, maybe the, and I don't want to oversimplify here, but maybe the idea is if you're suffering, if your anger is the root of the fear that comes from suffering and it shows up as violence, whether it's physical violence or psychological violence, then that's not going to be helpful. Uh, that's destructive. But if your suffering leads to wisdom or growth or development in your anger, anger that leads to anger that leads to violence is not going to be constructive. Anger that leads to wisdom or change or growth would be constructive. Yeah, I think that's always a good benchmark. Is it is it life giving or is it mm -hmm. death dealing? Uh, that's right. kind of a good litmus test for I think all kinds of things in life. Let me, let me also mention for folks listening to this that there's this amazing uh, person named Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R. She's written a book called Revolutionary Love, and she is the person who most responsible for launching the Revolutionary Love movement. It's based, she's, she herself is of the Sikh faith, S-I-K-H, from mm -hmm. India born in America, but uh, the daughter of Sikh farmers who came to Southern California uh, at the turn of the 
last century, a huge Sikh community in this country, and um, is a truly remarkable person uh, who captured kind of viral national attention um, on New Year's Eve of 2016 when she gave a, a now famous speech uh, in uh, either New York or DC in which she asked the line, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? Hmm. And the reason I'm mentioning this book, which is called Revolutionary Love, uh, I think it's got a subtitle, A, a Memoir and a Manifesto, um, is that her, her, she's, she's basically articulating a new nonviolent movement for peace, but it begins in acknowledging our suffering and work and working through that to recapture our love and then manifesting that in life-giving action. So there's a lot of work going on in this area that I find very solid and I highly recommend Valerie Kaur's book. Well, we need some revolutionary love when you look at the political situation, that's for sure. And so, um, I just have a couple questions and then my final question. And I'm so grateful for your time and I promise not to take too much more, but I can't resist just a couple if that's okay. So thank you. Um, I would say the, the, the Healing the Heart of Democracy, the book essentially says we need, and I don't want to diminish it, but at the heart of it is we need to learn how to talk to each other if we want to uh, keep democracy going. We can't just turn the other person into the enemy. In fact, you talk about Lincoln's first inaugural address where he talks about the better angels of our nature and that we need to be friends, not enemies. So my first question is, and I've just got a couple, but do you still have hope for this divided time? You wrote the book, I think, is it 2016 maybe when it came out? 2015, 2016? It's actually 2011, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so I guess, let's, let's ask the question a different way. Have you changed the way you see things since you published that book? Um, I think in the most, the mo my most fundamental answer to that is no, Jim. And, and the reason for that is not that I'm not fully cognizant of the mm -hmm. dangers of our time. Uh, I may be wrong, but that's my consciousness. In 2016, eight months before the general election, I published an online article at a, on a big platform called On Being, which is a public radio program that comes out of Minneapolis with Krista Tippett. Um, my, I was a columnist for the On Being site, and my article on March 9th of 2016 was titled, Will Fascism Trump Democracy? And I was just looking at the candidate uh, who became our 45th president. And in what I think is a calm and rational manner, I was quoting Abraham Lincoln uh, on the, the subject of the enemy within. Lincoln always said, this democracy is more likely to be brought down by internal forces than by anything from abroad. Um, and I was tracking especially the scapegoating that that particular candidate was already doing and had a long history of doing. And seeing that as one of the classical marks of fascism, mm -hmm. that you find a problem that vexes many, many people, 
as happened in the 30s in Germany, you find a scapegoat group on which to blame that problem, even though they have nothing to do with it. And then you promise to eliminate that group one way or another. Um, and, uh, and that's what was happening. And so I wrote it as I saw it. So I don't feel like I you know, am blinking things. In fact, I, re I reposted that article just this morning on my Facebook mm -hmm. author page. Um, where I now have a pretty large audience, and um, I'm, and I, I wrote a, an update to it, and, and I'm glad I did. But my my most fundamental belief here, Jim, as someone who's born in 1939 and has seen a lot of stuff, like a lot of us have in this country, uh, you know, post depression. Uh, the part, those parts of the war that even I can kind of vaguely remember, even though I was only six years old when it ended, mm -hmm. but then Korea and Vietnam and the civil rights movement and uh, the economic collapse and the, the onset of, you know, the, the growing awareness of the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander called it in an important book a few years ago. Um, I've seen this country, you know, come through the other side of some really difficult stuff. And um, while I worry, as do a lot of people, about the erosion of, our, of the institutions of our republic, um, I, I think it's important to go back to the fact that my book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, in 2011, specifically said, we are a representative democracy within a constitutional republic. I'm going to be writing about the democracy side of that, which has to do with how um, citizens can hold our differences in a way that's more life-giving than death-dealing. And, and I, I stand by all of that um, without going into a lot of detail there, but there is a lot of detail in the book about the kinds of conversations that I, that I think of as reweaving the fabric of our common life. Um, because people will become available for that again as, as this passes. It's going to take time. I probably won't live long enough to see it come to fruition. But um, I, we also have a younger generation rising up for whom I have great hope because of what they're already doing in the civic and political arena. Um, I, I think there's, there are promising indicators. I simply, my, my desire at this point is to be an elder who helps people maintain a container for complicated discussions. That, that are so complicated, we need many points of view to sort them out. We don't need fascism, you know, and we don't need communism. We need stuff that's, that we have always grown here at home that has seen us through before. And it ranges from conservation on the conservative side to liberation on the liberal side, and that includes liberation from old models and old ways of thinking. Um, that stuff is still with us. Um, 
I actually, in the heartland, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I feel that especially strongly about that, but it's everywhere in the country. I've, lived, I've spent many years East Coast and West Coast. And, you know, uh, I, I, I just, I look at, you know, I can, I can see the electoral college maps and I can see the polling maps and I can see those red states and blue states, but that's not what on the ground reality is like. And one of the big points in healing the heart of democracy was let's not fall into the trap of those media generated uh, illusions, stereotypes of who we are. There's this block over here, there's that block over there. Uh, we're actually a, a variegated group. And when you get granular about it in conversations with neighbors and colleagues and so forth, um, things get interesting. If we can stop talking about those people who are causing all the problems and start talking about the people in the room, uh, you and me, and those who have a chance to uh, live and work and talk with each other in a, in, a, in a more generative way. I always, when I'm doing civic conversation workshops, I always say, somebody tell me a story of the last time that talking about folks who aren't in the room helped solve any problem. <laughs> and nobody ever has a story. So I said, okay, let's find some ways to talk with each other, the folks in the room who, that might solve some problems. Thank you so much. I have one final question that I've been chomping at the bit to ask. And this is maybe my all-time favorite question to ask people. Anybody who knows me knows I ask this question all the time. But I've never done it in one of these little uh, conversations. So um, I've saved it for you. You're my person to try it on. And, uh, and the question is, uh, well, I should say too, I know uh, about your passion for music. You quote musicians all the time. You actually got uh, some extremely beautiful songs that you and Carrie Newcomer put out that people can access online. Um, they're beautiful, really beautiful songs. And I love Carrie Newcomer. But um, so here's my all-time favorite question. If you had to go to a desert island and you can only take five albums with you today, what would those five albums be? Yeah, thank you. You know, I had a chance to think about this because you gave me a little heads up uh, yesterday, yeah. I think. And I love the question. I, I do sort of live by music more and more as the years go by. Working with Carrie Newcomer on our online project called The Growing Edge is such a joy. And since I won't put my own song or the song Carrie and I wrote together on, on my list, I'll just tell people that they can go to YouTube and look for a song called The Music Will Play On, uh, which is a song I wrote and Carrie set to music. And uh, I... I, I I'm glad. I'm glad it happened. It's been a gift to me. So the, I don't have. I'm not an album guy. I'm a singles guy. That okay. probably goes back to well, me. You're too. You know? You're too young for me. Then that's what the deal is. <laughs> I'm an album guy. Go that's for good. it, though. No, that's good. Uh, that's good. But I want to name some songs that I love. There, there's a song that's very well known in Canada called "Working Man." Mm -hmm. And it's sung on YouTube by a, a group called Men of the Deeps. It's, my, it's a song about miners. Um, uh, it's a beautiful, powerful, and, uh, true, grim, and encouraging song at the same time. And this group, Men of the Deeps, is about 30 or 40 men, all of whom worked in the mines up in Nova Scotia. 
And I just, it just kind of blows me away every time. And especially in this hard political season, um, I find it, I find it very bracing. Carrie Newcomer, also on, new, uh, on YouTube, has a song called Sanctuary that I had a minor role in that I, I love. Uh, and it's, it's all about seeking sanctuary, kind of in the way that the freedom marchers uh, who got beaten up as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, went back to Brown Chapel Memorial Church, where I've visited, and uh, sought sanctuary, uh, as I learned during the time I was with John Lewis on, the, on his 2011 civil rights pilgrimage through Alabama. Um, Mary Gaucher, I think it's spelled G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R, has a song called Mercy Now that is also very moving and appropriate to our times. Um, I can't I can't omit We Shall Overcome or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, some, some of the songs that, are, that either came out of black gospel music or were sung in relation to the civil rights movement will always be important to me. And then finally, and here would be several albums, Leonard Cohen, uh, one of my heroes. Uh, two songs that I listen to a lot. One is called Tower of Song. Mm-hmm. And the other is called Democracy. Mm-hmm. And on YouTube, you can find Leonard Cohen singing Democracy uh, on, his, on the last tour of his life, a PBS broadcast of that concert, I think in London, that just always kind of blows me away. Brilliant song, brilliant man, heart and mind conjoined. Well, he's one of your heroes, but you're one of mine. And I'm profoundly grateful I want to say thanks carefully. So I've written down just a a paragraph here. Uh, Our little organization gives this award every year to someone whose work is so important that we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if it wasn't for them. And that's certainly true of your work. Your ideas course through my veins and you help me do um, work that honors the humanity of others and help me move a little closer to the undivided life and I'm very grateful for what you've meant to me, to our organization, to all the people, children and adults whose lives you've touched. And uh, I'm just really grateful. And thank you for uh, taking the time for this conversation. Thank, for all, thank you for all you've done. Well, thank you Finally. for those very kind words. And, and I know that this uh, award is named after Don Dreschler. I've never had the pleasure of meeting Don, but he sounds like a wonderful person. So I'm very honored to receive it. Thank you. Thank him. Thank everyone involved. I'm very grateful. Thank you.